This message was recorded at North 2011, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Welcome to our dear friend, Terry Virgo. Terry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fine, great, thanks. Thank you so much. It's really uh, a tremendous joy to be here. And I know for all of us, seeing an upcoming generation as well, one of the wonderful fruits of this kind of an event is that uh, our little children get a unique opportunity to meet with Jesus in a powerful way. Uh, For teenagers, often in small church plants, uh, can feel somewhat isolated Uh, And then in school, even more isolated, uh, as they go against the tide, alone very often, and then come here and mingle with a much bigger crowd and feel, hey, we are part of something bigger. That's where these events are of such huge significance. It's a real investment in the next generation. And uh, I must confess that from my perspective now, where everybody looks like a young person, it's a... (laughs) It's a huge joy to see Jeremy and Anne and uh, the guys, uh, the team here, and so many of you uh, taking responsibility. It's a huge delight just to see what God's doing here, uh, to feel the unity of purpose. And for me, it would have been worth coming just to be at the leaders' prayer meetings and to sense God's hand upon uh, those who gather there time after uh, time to pray before the sessions. And just to feel, hey, this isn't just a conference, this is a a movement of God. So thank you so much for your warm welcome. Uh, Wendy and I are delighted uh, to be with you and would, yes, value uh, your prayers ever so much. As we do feel God's leading us, we feel very happy to let go. Uh, as it were, the New Frontiers work. We're happy to go and serve. We're going in a few weeks' time to serve all the American leaders and their wives as they gather right in from across the States. And uh, we're happy to go and serve locations, but actually the reins are in the hands of a new generation. And uh, I'm delighted with that. They make innovative steps. They see how God leads them, they and their teams. And uh, it's a new day uh, for New Frontiers. So thank you for the privilege of visiting and serving you in the Word. And uh, we'll turn again to Ezra. Uh, This time uh, you'll be happy to know as you get there that I'm not going to read uh, chapter 2. It's one of those kind of chapters uh, that all preachers would be happy to throw away. We believe it's all inspired, but I'm not quite sure what it's all about. But uh, (laughs) it's it's just... um, (laughs) A list of tremendously relevant names, which I'm not going to read to you. Uh, It's fascinating, actually, that it is a list of names. And uh, some have said God is looking for a faceless army. What a sad thought. If I couldn't see all these faces here, and all these people, and uh, all these personalities. But of course, God wants a faceless army. God doesn't want to face this army. He wants people. He's not scared of personalities. He's not scared of heroes. Uh, David had an army full of heroes, and none of them threatened David's uh, kingship. It was just great to have great people in the army. And it's great to have great people in the army here. And so chapter 2, yes, yeah, a great list 
of names. But then we read in chapter 3, which we will read, when the seventh month came, and I'm reading from the NASB, uh, which may vary if you're reading another translation, but it won't vary very much. When the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities and the people gathered together as one man. I don't know how many thousands of names there are, or hundreds of names, but they gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it's written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance as each day required. Afterwards, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons, for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar woods from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Zodazak, and the rest of the brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua and they, his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the son of Judah, the sons of Henadad, with their sons, the brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with their trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with their cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, households, the old men who'd seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So the people couldn't distinguish the, shout, the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Father, thank you for the celebration that's in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for stories to tell of children saved, filled with the Spirit, healed. Thank you, Lord, for even as we've been in this meeting, healing bodies, touching lives. Thank you, Father, 
for your hand upon us. And we pray right now as we open our hearts to your word that the Holy Spirit would come upon us. Why don't you just uh, ask God yourself, please, Father, speak to me. Speak to me, Father. Ask him to speak to you. Father, we love your presence. We love meeting with you. We love your word coming to us. And we pray in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit to come upon us now. That, Lord, your word will do us good. That we might live to the praise of your glory more because this word came to us. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we find in this uh, uh, chapter, following a chapter of, as I said, hundreds and hundreds of names, that extraordinary phrase, they gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. That's an extraordinary thing. That takes a lot of doing to gather people, people even here with uh, leadership responsibility, uh, as are listed there. Uh, Yet they gathered together as one man. I've been fascinated how much that's been coming in the meeting already, that sense of our comradeship, our being together. And it's one of the things that God clearly uh, rejoices in. This isn't the only place where that phrase is found in the Old Testament. You'll find in the story of Gideon, they gathered as one man. You'll find that at the time when Saul was filled with the Spirit, when he was doing better in those early days, and it says the nation gathered as one man. It's a phrase that God loves. He said to Gideon, you will smite the Midianites as one man. You're going to go with a sense of profound unity, something that God treasures. And, of course, it's got a very New Testament feel to it, hasn't it? That we find in Ephesians in particular that God will take the Jews and the Gentiles, he'll build them together as one new man. He will create, that's the word used, creating one new man. Not a stitch up, not trying to just somehow, we'll have some of this and some of that. No, he is creating one new man. We learn as the Bible unfolds out of every tribe, every tongue. God creating a new uh, humanity in the earth. There's a new man coming. And he's going to come from every tribe and tongue, a new creation in Christ one new man. And so in the Old Testament, we get here a little picture of God's ultimate goal. He's going to have a new humanity that he can delight in, all in Christ, all for his glory. And one day we'll live in the new uh, earth that God will create. And that new earth will be like the temple. It will be like that one place where nothing unclean could enter in. It was just holy. It was where the presence of God is. Then the whole of creation, nothing unclean will enter in. His presence will be there and will be filled with this one new man. And now God is building that new man out of, the ty- out of the peoples, out of the nations. He's gathering this new man. So here in the Old Testament, we find what a key teaching there is here. We find too that the Lord Jesus, where we are permitted to kind of eavesdrop on that very beautiful prayer in John 17, Jesus coming to his Father and praying, and we find this high on his heart that they might be one. I'm praying, Father, that they may be one. They may be perfectly united. God, from his perspective, seeing the chaos that came with the fall, the breakdown of relationship first with God himself, and then the natural kick from that, yeah, losing relationship with one another, hatred, 
jealousy, even murder, coming so quickly in the early story of Genesis, the breakdown of relationships. God hates it. God living in Trinity, God living in beautiful harmony, wants that reflected in his creation, that we live in harmony. And I do believe it's one of the things God has taught us and wants to keep on teaching us. And of course, as we go into all kinds of different contexts and different spheres, and sometimes we'll overlap one another as uh, God speaks to you as a team, and a church is caught up with that team, and you speak of nations, and, and we think, well, oh, those other guys are in that nation too. And those other guys are working in there as well. So we're going to have to learn, Lord, teach us how to be as one. Not be competitive, not be, but we're getting there. We were here first. We need to be, oh God, help us to be as one new man, even though we're moving into multiplied uh, spheres of ministry, multiplied new leaders emerging, new churches gathering to them, not just being, oh, we're on some new frontiers list somewhere. That's the thing that terrified me. As we were growing and growing and the time came for me to hand over, the thing that terrified me was that we just have a great big monster thing. And churches would say, oh, we're on the new frontiers list, whatever that means. I thought, that's, no, that's not the way to go. Because when we started, it was, no, we're with you. And we're so excited. You're going to India, aren't you? I think we're going to Africa. And I feel we'll be praying for you. And there was real relationship, identification. And I was scared we're going to lose that because, well, I belong to New Frontiers, whatever that means. I thought we can't go there because we're charismatic. We're relational. We could lose something dynamically important. And God began to show us, no, the way forward is to observe, where am I doing that again? Where am I raising up gifted leaders? Where am I gathering leaders to a leader? Where, where is God doing that? And I thought, oh, he's doing it there. He's doing it there. I can see he's doing it there. Yes, let's release it like that so we can all feel what is so very evident here. We feel, yes, we're caught up with this. Our church, we feel, we know the faces. We know the guys who are going to go across to a plant into north, northern Wales or going to go out even to Canada. Yeah, they're our friends. We feel part of it. We put our money up. Yes, of course we will. It's not of some central office somewhere. No, we're in this together. Identification, faces we know. They'll be constantly growing and growing. This may happen again as we go forward, releasing another wave, another wave, so that we don't just become an institutional thing with some headquarters somewhere, who knows where. No, we'll always be looking for a relational factor and inspired by the Spirit. Makes us feel, no, I'm in this. I'm in partnership with you. I want, I want to be in partnership with you. It's what Paul saw in the New Testament church, the Macedonian church, in their poverty. He said, please, can we take part? Please, can we give? We, we feel, Paul, we're so caught up with you, what you're doing in the nations. Please, please. It wasn't formal. It was relational. It was charismatic, it was dynamic, it was world-changing. And I believe God's given us keys, and it's just a joy and a privilege for Wendy and me to stand on this platform just to see what's happening, to observe it, to feel so excited. Uh, hearing Jeremy last night and what God was saying to us as a people, that, yes, Lord, thank you so much, Lord. You're doing it again and again. Amen? Amen. And young guys in our ranks can say, well, that could be me. Who knows? God's got to do this again and again and again as the years unfold hallelujah so yeah this unity is a key as we press into increasing diversity so what is this unity about how did they gather as one man well i want to say this it's not cloning it's not identical 
It's not really, oh, this is, you know, it's not tied in so that, well, we've just got no room to move. Here's the list of rules. Did you sign it? Did you sign the list? It's like 25 pages with 15 points on every page, and you need to have to sign. That, that's what that's, it's not like that. It's not imposed cloning uniformity. That's not how it is. That's not the unity that God loves. God is a God of extraordinary diversity, and yet somehow there can come a spontaneous unity. I love the word that Ginny brought about the starlings, that no particular starling looks terribly impressive on its own. But when you see movement, you feel, well, who's told them all to do that? Are they attached? God spoke to us very early on about our being an armada. In the early days, when we were about 20 or 30 churches, you're an armada. And an armada is not kind of nailed together. It's not, there's not bars that go between them. It is that somehow you feel, hey, look, the admiral's on that ship at the moment, and we feel we're all in together. We know how to put our sails up. We know how to catch the sails, uh, the wind. And we're just going together out of our heart's desire to be together. But we've got all sorts of distinctives. As we began to use the word armada, some people said to us, you know what happened to the armada, don't you? <laughs> so, oh no, all right, so task force. Uh. And putting it in a modern style, it became increasingly conscious. Yeah, the, a modern fleet, to be honest, has all kinds of different ships that would have you know, minesweepers and aircraft carriers and destroyers and cruisers and, because you had different, there'll be different styles down through the years. You know, we have personalities in our ranks. I won't throw any names in, but we have different personalities. And you think, wow, he does it so different. But actually, although he does it so different, it's the same thing that burns in his heart. And churches will sometimes reflect just a different kind of anointing that's with that guy or that group of guys who lead us. There's something that fires them, but that's how it works for them. There's the same values, but there's a different personality there. There's a kind of slightly different feel about it. That's fine. We're not looking for cloning. We're not looking for the same identical thing. That's, that's just not how nature is that God made. And that's not how God wants it. All kinds of different personalities, and yet the same vision and truth, captivating. And so it's not cloning. As we see, there's whole these names here, many, many different names in chapter 2. But they were together as one man. I want to look at some of the ingredients that made them one man. The first one I see is this, that it was a, a, a God-inspired impulse. It says in chapter 1, the Spirit stirred their hearts. Their, their, their spirits were stirred to go. It was a supernatural thing, something of the Holy Spirit. And so these people would have been scattered around Babylon. They would have had their various jobs, uh, family settings. And the word went out, we're going to restore the house. We're going back. We're going to see God coming amongst us again. And and different ones would feel, oh, I love the sound of that. I love the sound of that. I know when I first started hearing people were getting baptized in the Spirit back in the 60s, long time ago. And I thought I was a good Baptist and I was longing for more of God, trying to find my way through the theology of it all. And then someone said, have you heard so-and-so? He's speaking in tongues. Yeah, he is. Oh, wow, have you heard these tapes coming across from California? These Episcopalians, they're speaking, they're speaking in tongues. What's happening? There's a new, there was like a buzz. It's like the beginning of Luke. Have you heard the Spirit's moving there? Have you heard the Spirit's moving there? Elizabeth runs across to Mary. Have you heard? Have you heard? God's, God's breaking out. 
And, and different ones of us at different times, we may have been going along and suddenly you read a book or you meet a person or you get invited to something like this and something within you says, yes, please. Yes, please. This is what I was saved for. This is what I've been longing for. This is what, oh God, I've had to put up with that, but this is what I want. And it's something of the spirit directly to your spirit. And you feel, oh, I found such companionship. I found such brotherliness. All the joys of coming. You know, you get fleeting moments with people, don't you? But the joining of heart with men and women, the joining of heart, you think, well, God bless you, man. It's so great to have had a couple of days. I don't know when we'll see you next, but we feel so joined. It's a God thing. It's wonderful. It's deep and profound. It's of the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's not just kind of, we can use the word spiritual in a careless kind of way, almost like atmosphere, but actually it's the Holy Spirit that brings unity. We're told to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's the unity which the Holy Spirit gives. And it's God who does it. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, it was breaking through all of his uh, tradition, all of his background, all the things that would have uh, held him back in the past. He would not have gone to a Gentile home He wouldn't have wanted to go to the home of a a Roman centurion, the hated Gentiles, the hated oppressors, uh, to go to a Roman home. And yet God told him by the Spirit, saw the sheep come down from heaven, and God said, now go with these men. And he went went to Cornelius' home. He would have been very frightened and, and very uneasy. But they're gathered. They said, God told us to send for you. God spoke to them. And he begins to preach the gospel. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. He begins to tell them, and if you look closely, he said enough of the gospel for them to believe. And as he's, while he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on these Roman soldiers, these pagans, these Gentiles, and they're all speaking in tongues. And he says, wow, you're speaking in tongues. Our God, the God of Israel, has come upon you. What is going on? And the next day, or at least the next chapter, he's back telling uh, his co-apostles, and they said, what happened? You were eating with Gentiles. You went into a Gentile home. What were you playing at? And Peter has to give his account to the other apostles. He says, while I was still speaking, actually his report says, I was just beginning to speak. And the Spirit fell on them. And they had the same Spirit as we. And they said, wow, God's done it. It's something God does. The Holy, the unity of the Spirit is more than just mental agreement. It's more actually than simply theological agreement, though that's important as it comes along. It initially was God coming by the Spirit. God sovereignly joining people. So now Peter is saying, hey, we're joined together then. We're one. It's a unity which the Holy Spirit has done. You've got the same Spirit that we have. And so we're told in Ephesians 4, maintain the unity of the Spirit while you are trying to attain to the unity of the faith. Now we're one because the Spirit's in you and the Spirit's in me. Now you need to learn some theology so we can attain to the unity of the faith. But we've already got this unity that God's given us. And we're meant to guard it jealously, fight for it, eagerly to maintain that unity of the Spirit. So they were one initially through the activity of the Spirit. God does it. It's something bigger than us. And we need to reverence Him and wait upon Him. 
because he's the initiator. He does it. Then secondly, I noticed this just looking at the passage. It quickly goes on to name Joshua and Zerubbabel. And it seems to me that one of the keys of their unity was God-given leadership. God raised up leaders to help them be united. That seems to me a very biblical concept, that leadership is a gift of God to his people. He blesses his people with leadership. It says back in Jeremiah, God promised them, I will give you, I will give you shepherds after my heart who will feed you with wisdom and understanding. Leadership is God's gift to his church. That's very sad when you get into churches that are dominated by not simply a democratic government process, but a democratic mentality that says, well, this is how I view the Bible. And when the man preaches, which, oh, I never thought it like that. I don't accept it like that. He wasn't very good this week. And, 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 and really, authority tends to be grassroots. And we may sometimes give permission to be led. That really is not the biblical way. One of the ways God gave unity was that he gave leadership. And we rallied to that leadership. He ascended on high. He gave gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. To what end? That we may arrive at unity. We arrive at unity as we honor the gifts that God has given us. He gives us leaders who bring about unity. That's one of the ways we go. That's why it's so great to be in this kind of a context. So we really respect the leadership that is there. It helps us to find one another. God gifts people leadership skill. They have gifts that inspire us. Gifts that motivate us. They have vision. They have, they have, we, as, as a flock of God, so often we can feel, well, I know the Lord, I love the Lord, but I get so inspired when my pastor speaks. I get so inspired when I come to church on Sunday and he starts to open the word. And when, he's, when he opens the word, I hear God in my heart. And I feel he, he calls me into new devotion. He, he helps me understand. He cuts me loose from my sin. When he speaks, I hear God. When he, when he begins to draw near, I feel God in the place. And that's how God builds his church. They're not just speakers. They're anointed by God to inspire us to come to our full potential, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God through the gifting of God in his church. It's not a casual thing. It's not a thing you can go to Bible college and get. You just say, well, I think I'd like to be a preacher. I'll go to college and become one. It's the gift of God. And that isn't to say you can't improve your skills by some training, by all means. But if God hasn't called, if God hasn't gifted, you're not a leader. It has to be God who initiates. It has to be God who inspires, God who motivates. Then we respond to that anointing. And that most frequent reference is a shepherd who cares for the flock. Then we thank God for prophetic people who give us revelation. Wow, that's a different gift. Evangelists who reap. Apostolic guys. Different gifts create different spheres of context and ministry. But we relate to leadership. We don't despise leadership. You see, we live in a day when leadership is pretty thin on the ground. When we look at the political world, we think, where are the giants? Where are the people who are inspired? And so leadership gets bad press. 
cynicism in our, in our press, always tearing down leadership. And it's very possible because all of us were born in Babylon that when you come into the church, you carry that mental attitude over. Cynicism about leadership. Well, you shouldn't do that. Well, I never thought about that. No, no, no. That's, that's Babylon. Cynicism about leadership. You see, the Bible says all authority is from God. And, and that was taught at the time of the Roman emperor. That's a dangerous thing to say because the Roman emperor was a pretty frightening authority structure. But the scripture says pray for those in leadership. Pray for government. All government is from God. I was helped to understand that more when I heard John Peepy speak from West Africa. He says, you want to live in a nation where government's gone. We watch what's happening right now in, in, in the Middle East. What's called the Arab Spring. You pull down a guy. Then what happens? Well, we don't know. Who's running? We don't know. What's going to happen? We don't know. That's terrifying. No government is terrifying. And yet we can have government and mock it and carry that into the church instead of saying, oh God, thank you for your wonderful wisdom in giving government. And honoring that in the church, it's anointed government from God. This is one of the ways he brought about leadership. One of the ways he brought about unity. How interesting it is. David says in 2 Samuel 5.12, it says this, David recognized... He was exalted for the sake of God's people, Israel. He wasn't exalted for his own sake. He wasn't, he wasn't lifted up in order that he might be something. He suddenly realized, it came to him, Oh, I see. God has raised me up for the well-being of the people. He's given peace. He's given a sense of purpose and meaning. When they were without a king, in Judges it says every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. It's chaos. The book of Judges is chaos. So God raises up leadership for our good. And in the church, it should be led by anointed people, called to do that, set apart by God, Holy Spirit given. He ascended on high and gave these. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. That's a frightening verse. It's like, here's, the, here's God, here's the people. We are God's fellow workers. Wow. There's some dignity there. That's a bit scary. You need to understand it's an important thing to see. And so we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We read a couple of very familiar verses. Verse 12 and 13, we request you, brothers, that you know and appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have the charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Only leadership, live in peace with one another. The two flow together. So it says, know those who are over you in the Lord. Do you know who's over you in the Lord? It's a foreign concept, isn't it? Over me in the Lord? It's me and Jesus. Well, the Bible says no and actually appreciate those who are, yes, over you in the Lord. That's your safe place. You've got shepherds who care for you, watch out for you, care for you, serve you. It's important then that we know. That's why floating Christians who don't belong to anything 
they don't really get very far. To be in a wholesome community with godly leadership is a massive privilege. Massive privilege. So that's, that's the way God wanted it to be. So if you, if you say, well, do I know who's over me in the Lord? You should know. You should know. You should know who your elders are. You say, no, they are over me in the Lord. They have responsibility. They will give account for me. That's the biblical concept. And that's what brought about unity, that they knew who their leaders were. Now, what kind of leaders were they? Let's just quickly tick a few boxes that are here. First of all, they were involved. So they were leading by example. They weren't issuing edicts from some central office. They were among the people. It's quite evident. They were accessible. They were close at hand. They're also doing the work. They're not just telling others what to do. Remember what Jesus uh, commented about the Pharisees, that they really were not worth imitating. And Jesus challenged the leadership that had begun to be formed. He offered a new kind of leadership. He said, I've come down to be your shepherd. And also he gives shepherds. And he's modeling a style which is like watch and imitate. And so it's not simply that we're looking for skillful platform people. Not simply we're looking for great orators. Paul says, though my speaking was often not really very impressive given the, uh, the, the rhetoric of his day where public speaking was a big deal. You didn't get television in those days. You had rhetoric, public speakers. And Paul's speech was pretty contemptible. But he would say this, what you see in me, do, and God will be with you. It's not just we're looking for performers, we're looking for character that's worth following. And that whole concept is imitate. Imitate. Imitate lifestyle. Imitate the way a man treats his wife. Imitate the way he raises his kids. Imitate the way you can depend on his word. If he says, I'll be there, he's there. He's not, oh, well, I'm the speaker, I don't come along much, you know. You ought to pray, you people, I haven't got time to be there myself. That's not the way. No, no, we lead. We lead. When we say we're going to have a gift day, we don't say, well, you people give to us. No, we're in there. We're in there. David said, I've given. I've given. And he's not sort of quiet about it. I've given. We're trying to lead from the front. We're trying to lead by example. That's the biblical way. We don't want to lead, let somebody lead us and we don't really know. That's why the, the formal church can be very dangerous, scary, because people go away to some sort of theological college and they come along and think, who's our new vicar? I don't really know. I don't, we came from over there. But we, who is he? When David became king, they said to David, you're bone of our bone. We knew you before you became our king. They said this to him. You, before you became king, you led us out. And you let us in. He was already a, a warrior among them. The gift was evident before it was recognized. We're not talking about status leadership. We're talking about gifted leadership. And so they could say to David, David, you used to lead us out. You just did it spontaneously. And you can see that in churches that dwell together in love. Not simply people who attend a certain building on Sundays, but relational communities you can observe. You think, boy, that guy, that girl. There's something about them, the way people get blessed being around them. People get freed up being around them. David, you let us out. Here are some of our young people up here this morning. We pray for your children. 
Forty got saved. These got healed. We got, hey, they're leading them out and they're leading them in. It's something God's done. And so we begin to observe. We say, would you lead a house group? And then you think, boy, that house group, it just keeps growing. People around that couple, they just grow. Look at it. Look what's happening. Look, it's the Holy Spirit is rising up. Something that's worth imitating. So these guys are being imitated. They're being followed. Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy. He's worked alongside me. So that's the biblical concept. The biblical concept is leaders are accessible. They're not just a sort of strange mystical priest. No, no, we're among the people. And it's so important that that inspires confidence, leading by example. Then also it says in verse 2 that they did such things as it is written in the law of Moses. And so the way these leaders led was say, look, this is what the word says, so this is the way we're going to do it. So they were leaders under the authority of Scripture. They're not just leaders who are uh, fun guys, got loads of personality. Oh, we, we know the Bible, but come on, let's move into something. No, 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 they said, this is what it says. Let's be careful. Let's be obedient to this objective revelation. God has spoken. We don't despise this book. We don't say, of course, that's what our brother, our fathers believe. But come on, we've come of age, 21st century. Come on. Culture's moved on. We must reflect the culture. We say, no, 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 we don't want to reflect the culture. We want to challenge the culture. We want to pull the culture into the scriptures. They said about Billy Graham when he came to England. They said, Billy Graham has taken the church back 50 years. And Billy said, oh, it was my intention to take you back 2,000 years. (laughs) Now, that's not retrograde. That can sound archaic. But what we're saying is, look, this was truth that set the world on fire. This was truth that took a handful of guys, uh, just fishermen and tax collectors and nobodies, and they turned the world upside down. They challenged the Roman Empire. They grew and multiplied. They cared for the poor. They transformed society. We're coming back to that. We're not saying, oh, it's in the Bible. You have to do it. We're saying, look what happened. When you turn your back, you drift away from the Bible. You can sound very modern, very up-to-date, very relevant. But listen, what are you saying? What is the truth? And so this leadership that we're seeing here, they're accessible, they're among the people, they're working alongside, but they're also saying, this is what the Word of God says. This is how we're doing it. We're doing it as it's written in the law of Moses. And beloved, over the years, we've had to face all kinds of challenges. I've seen fads come, dominate, and go. And people have said to me, aren't new frontiers getting into that? I thought, no, can't see it in the Bible. But everybody's doing it now. I thought, well, it may be for a little while. And sure enough, a couple of years later, all that little group of paperbacks went through and out the church, and we forgot it. I thought, thank God we didn't waste two years on that. And then another fad comes through. And another, beloved, this is the word of God. And so we want to follow leaders who say, look, this is what it says in the Word. Or when we're going to do something, is that biblical? And certainly we should be open as leaders. If any of us are saying, hey, Terry, but is it in the Bible what you say? Is it in the Bible? So it's good. We had seminars here a couple of days ago to, to have session. And at the end, hey, Terry, can you answer questions about that? It's not how dare you ask. No, come on. Let's, let's, let's think it through. I heard Peter Ustinov, at least I was reading about Peter Ustinov, and he was on Michael Parkinson's show. And uh, 
Parkinson said to Houston, he said, you like being interviewed, don't you? He said, do you know? Yes, I do. He said, why? He said, the funny thing is, he said, when I'm asked questions, I find out what I think. <laughs> I, love, I love sitting with young guys. We have our impact team, as uh, Jeremy referred to, I think, some point yesterday. You know, get a time when you're just with them and just questions bouncing off. And you think, they ask terrific questions. Some are so bright and sharp. Think, what about something? You think, boy, that's brilliant. I haven't actually. And, and you start thinking, well, what that, that principle implies, that, that principle. So, yeah, well, this is what I think about this. Of course, we can be challenged, questioned, asked, and always wanting to say. I was so thrilled when I was speaking at uh, St. Louis at the Acts 29 conference, which is not a charismatic movement, and Diet Patrick was there, and 300 pastors were there, and they were firing questions at me uh, after I'd preached. And just question after question, I'm answering questions, and I'm a charismatic. And, uh, and uh, the guy, Darren Patrick, just interrupted. Can I interrupt you a minute, Terry? And I said, sure. He said, uh, I just want you to notice, guys, have you noticed every answer is totally biblical? Thank you, Terry. Carry on. He went and sat down. I said, have you noticed? Beloved, I want people to notice. We're rooted in the Word. Leadership that's rooted in the Word. It says in the Bible that when you encounter God, every mouth is closed. It's one of the effects of hitting the gospel. But that, with Paul, it closed his eyes as well. He met God and it closed his mouth. It closed his eyes. He said, I can't see. He has acknowledged, before I met Jesus, I couldn't see. And before you meet Jesus, you've got lots of opinions. Your mouth can be very open. When you meet God, it says, every mouth is closed. And so really, you don't need to hear my opinions. They're not worth hearing. And so we're saying, Lord, please help me rethink. Sometimes God's got to beat you up a bit. Sometimes we come, you know, a desire to serve God. I'd love to serve God. I think perhaps I have a ministry. John Piper says, those whom God greatly uses, he greatly wounds first. God beats you up a bit sometimes. You think, God, help. You feel so useless. He allows you to see the devastation of your soul, how stupid you are, how weak you are. And then he gives you, in his infinite mercy, some grace to serve him. And sometimes people say, oh, aren't you proud? You think, <laughs> it's a joke. You don't understand. You don't understand the devastation that God does on you first. It can make you realize you're a hopeless case. You're a hopeless case. So that when you open your mouth, it's with permission. It's what does the word say? We're looking for leaders who say, well, this is what it says in the Bible. That's what these leaders were marked. This is, this is what, as it says in Moses. In other words, they're not trying to do something independent, something just impressive on its own. We want something that will stand. Not something that will just be glittering for a couple of years. Get some headlines for a little while. We're in it for the long haul. We're in it for a big task. So we need to be thoroughly, thoroughly biblical. Next thing I see about these leaders is they had encounters with God. They had encounters. It's fascinating to see both Joshua and Zerubbabel have phenomenal encounters. You find them particularly in the prophets that are associated with them. 
So you find that, uh, for instance, in Zechariah, you find Joshua, the high priest. He's one of these two leaders. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two leaders at this first wave of going back to rebuild the house. That's before Ezra came along behind, and then later Nehemiah comes. So these are the first two leaders. They're going, but they're getting revelations. So you find Joshua, and he has this encounter, and, the, and, and it says the prophet Zechariah comes along, and he sees Joshua, the high priest, and he sees him, and, and he says he's standing before God, but his clothes are all dirty, and Satan comes to accuse him. And in Zechariah 3, you see this thing that happens to this high priest, that the worship is being brought, restored worships beginning to happen as the rebuilt house is coming, and Satan is saying, you sinner, you mess, look at the mud on you, familiar ring, look at that. And then it says, God spoke, and God said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, take those clothes off him, put on new clothes, put a mitre on his head, you wonder how you, how do you keep a mitre on? Do you wonder that? You see these archbishops, how do you keep that thing on? I'll tell you how you have to keep your head up. Put a mitre on his head. Put fresh clothes. And God justifies him. And Joshua has a revelation. I'm justified. I'm accepted. I'm chosen. I'm handpicked. He has a revelation of the grace of God. This is a leader that's having, he's heard from God, I am thoroughly accepted because God has taken all my guilt away and replaced it with perfect righteousness. Hallelujah. We need leaders who've had their own encounter, who know that God's done this for them. Here's Joshua, he's had his encounter. Then you find Zerubbabel. You read in Zechariah 4, Oh, Zerubbabel, what is this mountain before you? The mountain before you shall become a plain. Zerubbabel has an encounter with God that makes him know that the mountain doesn't matter. We need leaders that have had experience of God in such a way that when you hit this, you think, but that's going to cost a couple of million. That's going to mean we're going to have to move to another town. How do we get this house? How do we get a new... There's so many problems. Leaders face huge problems. And they need to have meetings with God where God says into your inner being, that mountain will become a plain and you know it. And to be led by guys who know it in their spirit, that's going. That's getting out of our way. We are going. You see, beloved, when you're led in a democracy, shall we say, what do we think? What do you think? Well, I think it's pretty tough. Yes, so do I think. How many think we should go forward? Oh, I don't think so. So we don't. It, It needs leaders who've had encounters with God, who are persuaded. Now, God's called us to do this thing. And we're so blessed when, when leaders are like that. When leaders have had their, their Joshua encounter with the angel of the Lord, as we were hearing last night. When maybe others are trembling. And maybe Joshua's trembling at first when he looks up at Jericho. And he's missing Moses and all that. But suddenly he's had his own encounter with God. His own encounter. He's not just a clone. It's not like, what did Moses do? He's not a clone. He's had his own encounter. I love reading biographies. I love reading what, what these men like Hudson Taylor and C.T. Stard and these men, they had encounters. They weren't just correct people. The Apostle Paul was not a just theologian, though he was the most brilliant theologian that ever lived probably, but he's, he's on a mission. He's writing his letters in the context of mission and constant encounters. 
with the living God. So here are leaders who are submitted to truth, but also submissive to encounters with God and dependent on the Spirit. We haven't got time to go right through Zechariah, but it, it comes this lovely question. Who are these sons of fresh oil? It's obviously speaking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. Men, you can see oil continually flowing upon them. They're sons of fresh oil. Fresh oil, receiving continually the Holy Spirit. I remember hearing David Pawson speak once when he was talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said that phrase can become almost like a technical phrase. It doesn't have a lot of power in it in terms of what we hear. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he said you could imagine the early apostles thinking, well, how are we going to take the gospel to the, head, the ends of the earth? How are we going to do this? It's just terribly difficult. And he said, well, take that word, baptized. What does it mean? It means plunged. Plunged. And he said, what does it mean, the Holy Spirit? He said, it means holy power. And so he said, how are we going to do this? And Jesus said, you will be plunged into holy power. I think, okay, that will do. That would be very good. You'll be plunged into holy power. These guys knew the oil of God upon them. They were filled with holy oil. They were anointed and equipped by God. Fresh oil continually, continually coming upon them. So very important. I remember once I was, uh, I was mowing my garden, well, a little bit of grass, and it was one of those dry summers. Remember those dry summers? And... Uh, it was all very dry and yellow and bits of dust. And I'm just pushing the mower along. And it's just, I think, well, I don't know the point in doing this, really. It's just taking a few daisy heads off, you know, just to and fro. And as I'm looking at this dead thing, I, I glance up. And over my entrance door, we've got this kind of uh, little opening. And, and there's just tiles there. And up over this, I suddenly see this weed and I'm, pl- I'm, I'm mowing nothing, really, like concrete, really. And up there is this weed, boing, and it's got all flowers. And it's like a foot tall. And it's growing in my roof. And I think, what on earth is, how come that's growing and the grass isn't? <laughs> it's just, what is that? And I just see this drip coming down from our uh, upstairs bathroom. And there's an overflow drip. And there's this weed drinking in. And it's just, everything's rosy up here, chum. Because, and my lawn's dying. But this, it's just living in the drip. You know, we've got to, we need to be sons of fresh oil. Constantly being filled, constantly being renewed, refreshed. These guys were sons of fresh oil. Then notice also, their openness to other gifts. So, Zerubbabel, Joshua, they start, but then, then they need more help later. Nehemiah comes. Nehemiah is actually, a, 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 I think, a clear apostolic figure. He's a builder. He gets the walls up. And we need to understand that there are different gifts, dear friends. Different gifts in the body. So we thank God for shepherds, for eldership teams that are feeding the flock. But one of the things we've learned is we also need builders. We need master builders who can come in and, and say, well, hey, have, you got hold of, have your people really got hold of the grace of God? I'm not sure they look like they have. 
Are they all filled with the Spirit? Are they living in harmony? Are they, is it all working here? Have they understood who we are? Have we understood we are the people of God now? What, what, are, these, what, are, what are they taking up with that? What's, what's the big Israel deal here? What's going on here? What, why are they fascinated with that? Have, have they got hold of who the people of God are now? Have they understood what God's doing in the earth? We need, you know, sometimes that an apostolic, you can see what's happening. Like Paul could see in Galatia, they're drifting back into legalism. They're becoming ever so legalistic. What's happening here? We need the prophets. We need the apostles who can come in and, and free us from our isolation. God doesn't want independent churches. He wants interdependent churches. Churches that are really open in friendship and family, but also open to apostolic ministry coming in. Nehemiah came. Things took on new meaning when Nehemiah began to do his work. And then Ezra too. Ezra, the brilliant teacher, and they all stood and listened to this teaching. We need these various gifts. We have understood as a people that God wants us to know. Apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastor, teacher. It's a sad deal. But so many of our evangelical friends have said, no, that's, that was all over. When the perfect came, they think. When the perfect came, and they say, that, well, that's the Bible. When the Bible came, those gifts went. Beloved, the perfect is yet to come, and it's going to be wonderful. It's just going to be breathtaking. But the perfect has not yet come. We need these gifts. We need the help. So churches should be not only blessed by shepherds after God's own heart, but open to, in the voice of the apostolic ministry, the voice of the prophetic, the gift of the evangelist. We need the diverse gifts. That's here also that brings them to this unity couple more things as our time's going so quickly here. We find that their unity was also, I feel, built around the altar. It says the very first thing they did was that they set up an altar on its foundation. Verse 3. It's interesting, when, when Abraham first went into the land, you find he, he built an altar. It's a characteristic in the Old Testament to, to offer sacrifice quickly. To say, no, look, this is the ground we stand on. We stand on the ground of, yeah, a perfect lamb dies. Atonement is made. Acceptance through the death of a lamb. How do we get unity? We get unity through the initial working of the Spirit, through being led by leadership God has given us. We get also unity around the altar, around the cross, around the place where our sins are forgiven where we know that we stand on the same ground, every one of us, that when we're worshipping, it isn't like the leaders stand differently. We're all on the same ground. We're all saying, Lord Jesus, your shed blood. This is Jesus in his glory. King of heaven dying for me. It is finished. He has done it. Death is beaten. We all stand on that ground. Your cross, Lord Jesus. You bring us home. That's where unity around the cross is huge. And unity around worship just to quickly rush to, as it were, the next headline. We see here, they, they began to worship. And that's where, on these kind of occasions, dear friends, when you are led in worship and the Holy Spirit is present and we are uttering from our mouths with our hearts aflame great things about Jesus, you feel united. 
You feel that we all love him. We're all for him. We all depend on him. We're all, Lord Jesus, you're everything to me. And we're singing out from our heart. We're saying, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my all. Beloved, that brings a unity in the spirit. We're all identifying with this great Savior who's died for us. And, and so something it happens to us. We are softened together. We work things together. And the more we are softened in worship towards him, the easier it is for us to love and serve one another. That can happen too in a smaller church when we're meeting him and the Spirit's upon us and then someone offends you. But we maintain the unity because, well, we just prayed together. We've just been in his presence together. We find forgiveness easier. And when we remember the cross and we think, God, you forgave me all that, of course we'll forgive one another. Of course we'll let one another off. Not because, well, you have to. No, because you feel, God, you let me off. You forgave me. And so unity is a deeply felt thing. And beloved, God has blessed us with this over years now. And I've known folk come in, even to our prayer and fasting days when all the pastors gather. And I've had people who just came as guests and say, what have you got here? Who's leading this meeting anyway? All these different guys come up. I can't. What is this? And there's such an enjoyment of harmony because we're in the presence of the Lord. We're honoring Jesus. And unity is working its way in us. Unity is not always easy, is it? It's easy on a conference, in a sense. Although the mud doesn't make it any easier. It's when somebody lets you down. It's when do I have to put up with that? And we find, God, you're going to help me through tenderness and mercy to forgive and to continue living in the good of this. But being together with the saints frequently in the presence of the Spirit, when we're enjoying what Jesus has done for us, when the altar is established, when the heart of this church is, Jesus, your blood rescued us. Now your Spirit's presence unites us. Unity is worked out over the altar, over worship. And then the very last thing I just want to Notice this strange thing at the end of the chapter when it says that some said, wow, this is amazing. Others said, it's not like it used to be. And so you find at the end of the chapter, some had seen the first temple wet. Others were just so excited and shouting. That's a challenging thing. It's what uh, Derek Kidner calls the unexpectedness of actuality. The unexpectedness of actuality. It's like you suddenly hit what you didn't anticipate. We're going church planting. There's 20 of us now. And we're all together in New Frontiers. And here we are. And you mean you don't like that? I thought you would like that. Well, we never did it like that where I came from. It was different there. Oh, over here we did. In York we did that. Oh, in Leeds we did that. And we're now going to come together? Oh. It's how we handle that. How we handle the, the reality factor. We, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And sometimes you hit the treasure, and sometimes you hit the earthen vessel. And it's how you handle it. Beloved, it's going to require patience and tenderness. When I thought this, and well, we came with this idea, and oh dear. See, that will happen. That can happen in marriage. I thought, 
Wow, he's wonderful. I hear some of these guys, I even see it on Facebook sometimes. Some of these girls saying, we're going to get married. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's one I see quite frequently these days because I happen to know them. And she's saying, oh, there's so many days to come. Oh, can't wait. I'm scared stiff for them. Because <laughs> I think somehow she thinks he's at least messianic. <laughs> and he ain't. He's just a nice guy. Really nice guy. But he's not going to meet her every longing. He's not going to satisfy our heart's desire. Even in our marriages, we can be shocked. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you thought that. Even in marriage. Even in marriage. You can be, what? Certainly in church plant, I thought we'd be so harmonious. You look such fun. And you think, oh gosh, they've got some funny ways. It's how, you, how we handle those things. It's how we walk through the disappointments, the setbacks, the unexpected, and finding actually all our joy is in Jesus. It's digging into Jesus again, getting fresh oil from him afresh, giving, getting mercy again, giving away mercy again, giving away acceptance again. Beloved, we're going out into a, into a world where people have no idea how to relate. They don't know how. It's a strange thing today. There's the Notting Hill uh, event, you know, and all these people in London, they've been in the streets and they're laughing and they're joking and they're playing their music. And a few weeks ago, they were smashing their windows and setting fire. You think, boy, isn't the human race weird? Isn't the human race weird? But they're so fragmented. People are so fragmented, they don't know how to give away mercy. They walk out on one another. They walk out. And then and the nation's falling apart. Marriage is falling apart. Husbands and wives, blah, I'm out of here. Parents and kids, I can't wait to get away from my parents. Oh, good, get rid of these kids. And, and beloved, kids in, in, in court and the parents not even turning up. Oh, I deserved it anyway. Wow, it's such a breakdown. And beloved, we've got to go with something that says, no, I, I'll have mercy. You do it different to me, but we're in this together. We're going to find our way through. We're going to work at this. And in marriage, we're going to say, no, okay, oh, that's the way your parents always did it. Well, my mum always did it this way. Okay, well, I think we're married now, aren't we? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll find our way, shall we? So we've, we've, we need to say, Lord Jesus, you fight for unity. You lay down your life for one another. You give away mercy. You forgive. You realize your partner can't meet every need of yours. Only Jesus can. You say, no, we'll walk through this. We're in this together. We're in this church together. We're not going to impose unexpected challenges on other people. We're not going to expect of them what they can't provide. We're going to find the, the generation differences. Oh, they have the music too loud. I'm leaving the church. Come on. We're on about a big mission. That means we put up with things. That means we say, okay, it's not what I expected, but we're aiming higher. We're going to keep talking. We're going to fellowship. Unity doesn't mean cloning. It doesn't mean I can't, we can't have a conversation about this. It doesn't mean, oh, you have to do it that way. No, it means we can talk. It means we can fellowship. 
means we can have explanation. We can, we can be open. We need to learn how to be open with one another, that we don't suddenly blow up and walk out. We converse, we talk, we fellowship. Okay, I never thought it would be like this. Church planting is massively challenging. You're suddenly in very close proximity with a small group whom you didn't necessarily know before. So we can say, Lord, help us. Help us. They gather together as one man. God says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Haggai makes his breathtaking promises. The ultimate is breathtaking. Shall we do it? Shall we walk in unity? Say, Lord, we're going to work this through. We're going to build something glorious that will bring you honor. Can we stand to pray, please? Does your heart say, Lord, let's build a house for your glory. Let's be in a temple where your presence is felt and enjoyed. I'm going to embrace leadership. Will you do that? These guys are your elders. God's raised them up. Know those who are over you in the Lord. Thank God for them. Pray for them. Honor them. Respect the grace that's on them. They're there to serve you. For your good. Humble yourself at the cross, at the altar, where our pride goes, where our mouths are closed. We look at the devotion of Jesus and our mouths are closed. We stay in the spirit under pressure. Say, Lord, I come back to you. I come back for more Holy Spirit, please. I've got dry. I need more spirit. Lord, I need more of you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. I thank you so much for what you're doing here. I thank you for every church. I thank you for every new church being planted. I thank you for the spirit of adventure that is so manifestly here. I thank you for the unity that I observe, the harmony, the desire to see other people blessed. I thank you guys are fighting for one another, believing for one another, sharing their money to help one another succeed. Father, thank you so much. Thank you. I believe you're gathering us as one man. Lord, I ask you right now, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your wonderful blessing on every church represented here. Pray for every family here. Come, Holy Spirit. Come on us, Lord. Let our unity be manifest. Not just in public, but when we're just in private conversations, let us be consistent. Let Unity be on display. Bless these dear people. Bless the children we've just seen. Lord, as we join with them afresh, we pray for kids that are freshly alive to God. Help us to parent them well. Suddenly know who Jesus is. Suddenly being filled with the Spirit. Oh God, help us to do a great job with them. To embrace them. To help them dream big dreams. So bless our families. Bless our churches. Glorify your great name. Make Jesus famous in our generation, Lord. We long for you to come in our nations. We long to see you glorify your beloved Son, Father. We long, we long for it. We long, God, to see a nation changed. We long to hear the name Jesus being sung out. 
Oh God, come and move in our day, we pray. Glorify your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.